welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your guest host, Noah Chauvin, an attorney practicing in Washington, D.C. I'm joined today by Sarah Grass, an associate professor and the executive director of the Rodino Center at Seton Hall Law School. We will be discussing her article, Positioning Podcasting as Legal Scholarship, which will be published in the Utah Law Review. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Well, I am delighted uh, to, to uh, be able to talk to you about this article. I thought it was fascinating, and I, as we were talking about before we started recording, I, I have a lot of thoughts on it. I'm wondering if you can help frame the discussion for our audience by talking about some of the ways in which legal scholarship is different from scholarship in other disciplines. Sure. So, um, you know, one of the things that people who are not in the legal academy um, always comment on when I talk about scholarship is um, the lack of peer review, obviously. Um, We don't have uh, a formal peer review process for the majority of our um, scholarly publications, although that's, you know, becoming less true. Um, But that is because, uh, for the most part, as legal scholars, we publish our work in law reviews and journals that are run and entirely uh, edited by uh, law students, um, which is, I think, pretty unique in academia. Um, we also have uh, often like several publications within a particular law school. Um, one publication is generally considered the flagship, uh, while others might be specialized journals that are maybe topically focused in some way. Um, there, well, I think those are like the biggest things. <laughs> uh, but then there's other characteristics too, uh, like uh, works of legal scholarship tend to be much, much, much longer <laughs> than uh, works of scholarship in other disciplines. Um, you know, 40, 50, 60, maybe even 80 pages long with um, hundreds of footnotes. Um, and, you know, they're just, they're kind of just unrecognizable to scholars I've found in, in other disciplines particularly hard sciences. That's interesting. And it, it seems to me uh, that in, in some ways that there's a relationship there, right? Um, that that um, legal scholars might feel compelled to, to make up for um, uh, you know, a, a perceived lack of, of rigor, right? Whether, whether that's fair or not, uh, by writing these long articles that include you know, literature reviews and hundreds of footnotes as a way of demonstrating that they're doing serious scholarly work. Um, And and that leads into the next piece of what I wanted to talk to you about, um, because legal scholarship, I'm understanding from reading your article, is is also distinct from scholarship in other disciplines in that it's rather hidebound, right? There's kind of one thing that, that constitutes true legal scholarship, uh, and that's that's the law review article. Is that what your research revealed? I, I think um, yes. Like today, and in the last you know few decades, that does seem to be what the legal academy considers legal scholarship for the purposes of um, you know promotion and tenure of law faculty. You know, I do think that that I mean, well, and I talk about this in the article. That wasn't you know always the case. Um, you know, the the gold standard of 
law faculty, you know, work product used to be, right, a, tr a topical treatise, um, where that is not so much, um, you know, the, the ambition of most law faculty today. Sure. No, that makes sense. And so uh, you, you talk about kind of podcasting specifically as, as kind of a, a form of legal scholarship. Um, and so I'm wondering if we can kind of start with what is it that makes something scholarship or legal scholarship in your view? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that really comes down to the content versus the form, right? Um, and that it, that is kind of what I'm trying to get at with this article is that, you know, we seem very bound in the legal academy by classifying scholarship according to the form in which it is presented rather than, rather than just the content, right? And so for something to be scholarly, I mean, there are, there are a lot of different sort of, I don't want to say genres, but there are a lot of different types of legal scholarship that have, you know, evolved and emerged over the last several decades. Um, you know, but the, it is really, I think, characterized by thinking about and discussing the law as it exists and perhaps as it should be in some cases, or how we can look at the law differently through the lens of other disciplines in the case of sort of interdisciplinary legal scholarship. Um, but it is, I think, all to, I guess, the general purpose of helping the reader understand better the law and the way it acts upon us or exists in our world, right? That's so general. Um, but I think that's, I mean, there are so many different types of legal scholarship that, that perhaps that's the only generalization that I think is fair to make. Um, but yeah, I think what is I think a missed opportunity to me is that, you know, legal scholarship in this particular form of the law review article is sort of self-limiting. Um, you know, I don't think very many people outside of the legal academy consume law review articles on like a regular basis. And even within the legal academy, you know, I know most students, if they're not assigned an article to read, or if they are not doing research for an article or a paper of their own, probably also do not go and read law review articles, and most practicing attorneys don't either. Um, and I, I think that that limits who we can reach as legal scholars with these thoughts and ideas about the law and what it should be or how it could be different or how we could, you know, kind of frame things differently or understand things differently um, because our audience is so small and it's kind of, we're kind of just talking to ourselves, right? Um, in this form of the law review article, even though our ideas are in many cases, or hopefully in most cases, <laughs> unique and novel and exciting and potentially really um, important to practitioners. And yeah, that's, that's kind of where I see podcasting as presenting a really big opportunity. 
Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and certainly there's a lot of value in, um, in podcasting that way. I, I, um, one of the podcasts that, that I enjoy listening to um, made, made the point um, uh, the, the, the host did when they were talking to each other um, of saying that, that, you know, the kind of changes that they wanted to see in the world weren't going to happen uh, because of you know, articles that they were writing that, that you know, collect dust on, on, on library stacks because nobody reads them, right? Audio is, is kind of the medium now to, to reach so many people. Um, but I wonder if you can talk about, um, you know, podcasting is, is kind of the, the, the latest technology in, in that vein, right? But there have been... Uh, other mediums in the past that have served that role, right? Blogging, for instance, in the early 2000s um, was something that was incredibly important on kind of the early internet. Lots of people had blogs. Many of them became very influential. And there were a lot of legal blogs uh, that that caught millions of readers a month. Uh, Those never caught on uh, as, as scholarship, as you document in, in the article. And I'm wondering if you can talk about why that was and, and whether that was a, a missed opportunity. So, yeah, I do think, so I think there's a couple things. I think there were a, a substantial number of, you know, pretty well-regarded legal scholars who felt like blogging, if not scholarship standing alone, had like a really important voice in legal scholarship in that like a blog a legal blog you know a post or series of posts written about a particular topic presented an opportunity to express an opinion um or ideas or theories on things in a much more immediate way than our you know, kind of existing and long, long-standing um, law review publication model, um, and you know, there was even a symposium about it, right? <laughs> Which brought together all of these um, individuals who who wrote articles on both sides of the debate, but you know, who I think for the most part saw the potential there in blogging and some even felt like blogging already kind of checked all the boxes of legal scholarship definitionally. Um, But I think the problem is that our institutions didn't come along kind of on that ride with, with the faculty who, who felt that that potential was there. Um, you know, it's one thing for a group of faculty who already have tenure in many cases um, and who, you know, are well-regarded and easily able to continue publishing in law reviews while also writing their own legal blogs to say, well, I think my, my legal blogging is also part of my scholarship. Like, yeah, those, those people can say that um, and people might agree with them, but for those of us in the academy who are pre-tenure, who, um, you know, maybe don't have the same name recognition or cachet um, to, you know, 
kind of take liberties with how we spend like the limited time that we can invest in scholarship, right? If, if our institutions aren't going to recognize that activity as part of our scholarship, then it's hard to invest in. And ultimately, I think that's why legal blogging did not become more of a like fruitful medium for legal scholarship because, you know, it ultimately is still kind of just a few really big names continuing to create those legal blogs um, as part of a of part of a kind of catalog of scholarship that's already so robust that nobody's really questioning anything that they do. That's interesting. And, and you talk in the article about some of the kind of institutional and, and structural impediments to, to podcasting being recognized as, as a, a medium of, of legal scholarship. And I, I'd like to talk a, a bit more about that in, in a moment, but it, it strikes me that part of the challenge here uh, in, in assessing new uh, mediums of scholarship right, beyond the law review article uh, is that uh, we're talking about kind of forms of, of sharing information uh, that, that aren't uniform, right? Law review articles, as, as you've said, they, they tend to follow a particular form, right? They're, they're 40 to 60 pages long. They have a few hundred footnotes, um, I, right? The, the, there's, there's a formula that you kind of go through. You do the introduction, then you do your literature review, you introduce the problem, you make your argument, you respond to counter arguments, and you conclude. Um, and you know, when it comes to, to, to blogging or to podcasting, right, those, you know, those forms can manifest in a number of different ways. And so you talk, um, you know, we, we've talked about some of the, the practical benefits of, of podcasting and sort of who you can reach. Um, but I'm wondering, how do we assess whether a, a podcast is, is scholarly versus something else, right? What, what distinguishes scholarly podcasting from, say, you know, news commentary or things of that nature? Yeah, I mean, that's really one of the things that I really kind of grappled with when I was working on this piece. Um, and I think the conclusion that I ultimately came to is that, you know, again, that really does come down to content, right? And and even one could write a law review article, like in sort of the format of a law review article and still not really be generating scholarship, right? It really does come down to the ideas. So that really is for, you know, the consumer or the evaluator to determine. And to me, that comes down to, you know, we do have committees and, and you know, groups of other faculty who assess our scholarship within our institutions um, who are, brilliant scholars themselves generally, right, who should be able to look at ideas presented in other mediums and determine whether, you know, that demonstrates a level of, you know, creative academic thought um, and really makes a contribution to um, the body of existing legal scholarship, ultimately, regardless of the format that it's in. Um, and, you know, I think if we are looking for sort of criteria or methods of assessment, one of the things that I kind of look at in the article is how other disciplines are already doing this, right? Um, there are obviously 
so if we look at the arts as an example, uh, there are academics uh, who, you know, present as a work of scholarship, perhaps like a sculpture or a weaving or an installation piece, right? And there, there has to be a way, um, and there is a way, obviously, for their colleagues to, um, or other scholars within that discipline, to assess, um, you know, the work that is being created. And there are disciplines where podcasting has been considered, you know, a part of scholarship for many years, or digital publishing at least, um, and, you know, podcasting more recently as a specific subset of that. You talk a, a bit in the article um, about, um, you know, some of those disciplines, and, and one of the defining features of them is that that there's peer review, right? And, and sometimes it's the podcast themselves that are undergoing um, peer review. Do you think? Do you think something like that would be necessary in kind of legal scholarship in order for podcasts to be considered scholarly? I mean, maybe yes, maybe no. I, I don't necessarily think that law students are incapable of <laughs> assessing the quality of of an idea by any means, right? I think. I think what they lack and what I think some people criticize about the law review publication system is that law students are generally not subject matter experts. Um, So, you know, if we're talking about topics that are, you know, incredibly technical or very complex legal subjects, um, would it be difficult for like a law student to assess like how to what degree, you know, that scholars' thoughts were new or different? Like, yes. Um, But I don't think that that's any more true in podcasting than in writing, right? I I think it's the same. Again, because it comes down to the ideas, not the presentation of the ideas, like the form. Um, But I guess the question is perhaps... You know, if if there were sort of efforts to create sort of a student-run podcast um, where they, you know, brought scholars in to, you know, talk about, to have a conversation about particular ideas, you know, would the students be the right people to facilitate that? I mean, no, it would probably look a little different, right? Um Maybe the student editors of a podcast wouldn't be the ones necessarily to have a conversation with a legal scholar about a particular issue, but maybe they bring together a group of legal scholars who have a conversation about a particular issue, and that's sort of their editorial contribution, right? Um, And that's how you kind of could have a student-run podcast on scholarly issues. Student editors can still select the topics. They can still solicit speakers. They can even facilitate those conversations and, and think about like what questions, do some research. What questions would we want to ask these people? What do we want to hear them talk about? Um, what are current issues like in this area, um, you know, that perhaps their past scholarship might, um, you know, relate to that we should discuss? And that's sort of, to me, the podcast equivalent of you know, what students do on a law review. Sure. I, I think that's a, a really interesting model. And I, I'm not aware of uh, any any student-run podcasts that do that. But 
any law students are, are listening to this, I strongly encourage you to think about it. It's a, a very interesting idea. Um, it could produce um, a, a great show. Um, so, Sarah, you, you talk uh, in the article uh, about, right, you, you've given us just now kind of one form that sort of scholarly podcasting could take. Um, but you talk in the article about um, several different podcasts, each of which has uh, a, a distinct form, right? And, and you, you kind of assess each of them uh, to be scholarly. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the, the, the various forms that sort of scholarly podcasts could take and, and the ways in which they're, they're sort of similar to one another and, and how they differ. Yeah, so um, the three podcasts that I selected are ones that I, so Ipsa Dixit, um, Excited Utterance, and Strict Scrutiny, all, I think, three well-regarded and very in, popular in varying degrees, I think, respective to their, uh, to the audience to which they're trying to appeal, right? Um, certainly within their, within their genres, they are extremely well-known and popular. Um, and yeah, I, I looked at kind of how they all in an episode or a couple episodes address sort of a particular topic, um, or a, generally a particular topic. Um, so, you know, Ipsa Dixit for those who are new to the podcast, uh, most episodes proceed like very similar to this one. There is a host, there is a guest. The guest has, you know, in many cases published or is publishing a piece of scholarship, although that's not always true. Um, and they talk about it, right? Um, and the focus really is on presenting that particular legal scholar's work um, and giving them an opportunity to, you know, elaborate on their ideas. Um, highlight certain things in that that work that, you know, they really want to draw people's attention to because, you know, articles are long. Not everyone has the time to read the whole thing. Um, and it, it's, I think, a platform for people, for legal scholars to kind of highlight the best of their ideas. So um, Excited Utterance, which is more focused topically on, um, you know, evidence issues uh, is similar, right? You have hosts, you have guests. Those guests are almost always law faculty um, talking about their work on a particular issue. Um, I would say the difference, uh, it's in its a slight difference, <laughs> is that the guests and the hosts are definitely on the same playing field with their level of expertise on the issues, right? So um, Ipsa Dixit, the range of topics covered is so wide, um, even though uh, there are multiple hosts and guest hosts, you know, it's not always going to be the case that like the guests and the hosts are talking at exactly the same level about the issues. Whereas um, Excited Utterance is different in that way. Um, so, you know, there's a little bit maybe more of digging into the substantive law, um, maybe a little bit more from the host, uh, kind of maybe what, not questioning in like a negative way, but maybe, you know, elaborating on or adding to the ideas of the guest. Um, 
And so I guess that to me would be the the difference that I see and that I would highlight there. Strict scrutiny is very different. Um, Strict scrutiny is, uh, has three co-hosts. They are presenting mostly um, their own thoughts, observations, feelings about um, the latest Supreme Court goings on um, and culture a little bit, court culture. Uh, And they do often have guests for like a portion of an episode uh, who will present ideas um, and discuss issues. But it really is them um, talking about, you know, maybe cases that are pending um, that maybe where the oral arguments had just been presented and breaking it down, analyzing it. And that is definitely different from the other two. So I think what makes them all, all different from legal news, for example, is that they are presenting ideas, positions, theories, right? They are not just reporting the facts. They are not just offering up like an objective analysis. Um, They have a viewpoint and it is a platform. They are platforms for that viewpoint. And I would say like fundamentally, that's the biggest thing that distinguishes it from something like, you know, some other type of legal newt. Like I really like Law 360's Pro Se podcast, for example. Um, that is that's legal journalism to me, um, and it's it's very different, right? Um, they're both the hosts and the guests are bringing their legal knowledge and experience to position ideas um, in a way that makes them understandable, interesting um, usable information for the listener, uh, which is kind of really what ideally legal scholarship does as well. Right. Um, it distills a bunch of disparate pieces of information and presents it to the reader in a way that, you know, helps them understand it, intake it, use it in some way that is beneficial to them as a scholar, as a lawyer, as a judge. Um, so I guess that's, those are sort of my broad thoughts. I think that's um, very helpful to hear about what it is that, that ties them together and, and, and makes them scholarly. So I, I think that's very helpful. Um, our, our listeners should know, um, Sarah's too modest to say it, she, she has um, a, a review of uh, Law360's podcast out in the Law Library Journal. It's up on uh, her SSRN. It's a, a quick read, but, but quite good. And I encourage you to check it out. Um, so, Sarah, as, as you know, I am kind of sympathetic to your argument that, that podcasts can be considered uh, legal scholarship. I, I have written um, uh, an article myself on, on this that was much narrower in scope, and it considered uh, this podcast, Ipsy Dixit. And, and made the argument that it, it should be considered scholarly. And I was realizing in reading your paper that I had missed an important point in, in making that argument. And my paper was agnostic on 
of who should get credit for the scholarly activity in, in the podcast, right? It, it talked about the podcast itself, but not for, uh, you know, as scholarship, but didn't talk about kind of who the scholar was. And so I'm wondering if you have thoughts on how that aspect of kind of scholarly podcasting ought to be considered. Is it, does the host get credit for, for some kind of scholarly activity? Is it just the guest when there's this sort of guest host dynamic? How, how should that aspect of things work? Should they be weighted differently? So again, I, I feel like a little, like I'm kicking this, the can down the road a little bit with this. Um, and I don't want to avoid the question, but I think, <laughs> I think it kind of depends. Um, <laughs> I think it depends on the, t- I think it depends on the topic. I think it depends on the depth of discussion, the degree to which, um, y- y- you know, I, I think there is a difference between being a guest on a podcast to engage in self-promotion, like of your work or to just, you know, and I don't mean self-promotion in a derogatory way, but, um, you know, as a means of marketing yourself as a scholar and actually going into a podcast to have a conversation where you are really drawing on you know, all of your knowledge and all of your accumulated thoughts on, you know, particular issues in order to sort of engage in, you know, a robust conversation that may produce, you know, new ideas either for you or for the person you're having the conversation with. Um, and, you know, again, we don't have like a great model of what this would look like in the legal, exactly in the legal space, but, you know, there are other examples out there, I think, um, that get kind of closer to what that looks like for me, if that's, and I can give some examples if that's helpful. Okay, so an example of a a podcast that I like that is not legal, um, it's called You're Wrong About. (laughs) Uh, And if if anyone is familiar with um, the You're Wrong About podcast, you know, every every episode, for the most part, kind of stands alone. Um, The host, uh, whose name is Sarah Marshall, um, has a guest to talk about a... who's sort of an expert or perhaps has written about a cultural phenomenon or historical event that we all think we understand, but that we really don't know all the details and that we don't fully understand um, in the way that I think we all think we do, which is why it's called You're Wrong About, right? Um, And the dialogue that Sarah, the host, has with the guests really interrogates sort of you know, not just what happened, but perhaps like why we think about it the way we do now culturally, right? Um, And also maybe what has happened to the individuals involved in that incident since that time and how, you know, those individuals' lives have been shaped by those events 
Um, I listened to an episode recently. It was about um, baby Jessica who fell down the well um, and what happened to baby Jessica after and sort of the not just baby Jessica, but everything about like the small town where that happened and like the effect on the community, the effect on um, the man who rescued her ultimately, um, who, you know, went down this shaft like over and over again to try and save her. Um, and, and, you know, the effect that it had on Jessica as an adult and like what her life is like now and talking about, you know, fame and celebrity and that the impact of that on an individual. Um, so to me, like that's, that is more scholarly. I mean, obviously not in our discipline, but but scholarly in a discipline, if that makes sense. It definitely does. I, I, I'm wondering, though, about kind of the, the distinction between sort of, uh, I think you characterize it as, as self-promotion and, and the generation of new ideas. And um, in, in how we would uh, assess these things, right? So for um, faculty hiring or, or promotion committees, right, when they're trying to evaluate um, someone's scholarly output, right, how, how are they to tell when they're listening to a podcast episode, right, whether it's kind of mere self-promotion of, of something that the, you know, that the scholar has you know, written or, or you know, work that they've done elsewhere, and you know, generation of, of, kind of new ideas. Yeah, so I think that that's something that is nece- this is one of the structural things that I think is necessary in order for podcasting to be seriously regarded as a part of legal scholarship. I think that um, institutionally, there will need to be you know affirmative steps taken to create those those standards and those metrics. Um, and, you know, there are, again, there are existing guidelines out there in other, you know, disciplines like, you know, digital media, digital humanities um, for evaluating that type of work that we could borrow from. There are um, also some, a couple schools, <laughs> um, the only one who, the only one whose bylaws I could find online was the University of Houston, um, where their faculty bylaws do specifically state that faculty scholarship can include other forms of media um, that evince scholarly thought and contribute to legal understanding, which is kind of vague, right? So, um, you know, clearly the University of Houston's uh, faculty are having to evaluate that according to those very broad guidelines, right? Um, and, you know, I think this is where things like existing systems of peer review in other disciplines could be useful, right? Because that's essentially what we're doing when we evaluate our colleagues' scholarship is we're engaging in a form of peer review, um, even though that's not what our law journals do. Um, and so I think, you know, there are definitely things that we can draw from that. So um, one of the things I mentioned in the article is uh, the Secret Feminist Agenda podcast, um, which is an explicitly peer-reviewed scholarly podcast. Again, totally different discipline. But, um, you know, the reviewers are actually charged with addressing specific questions, right? And like, one of the questions, and I'm going to just read here, (laughs) is does the podcast contribute to scholarship by presenting new research 
or by offering a new understanding of or approach to familiar material? I mean, I think that's a really good question. And I think that that could apply in all types of disciplines. Um, and I think that that question would be equally appropriate in assessing a legal podcast, right? Um, and I think that certainly something that's simply promotional or, you know, just maybe a reporting on a recent case development wouldn't fall into that. Wouldn't The answer wouldn't be yes, right? Um, another question, oh, another aspect that they were asked to um, comment on is the degree to which the podcast engages with existing scholarship. Again, that is another question that I think would really distinguish a scholarly legal podcast from other types of legal podcasting, right? Um, the degree to which, you know, the podcast host or guest, you know, incorporates references, draws upon existing legal scholarship, you know, that is definitely characteristic of scholarship in a way that other types of podcasting probably wouldn't, wouldn't have those characteristics. Absolutely. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, some of the other kind of institutional or structural constraints that would need to be overcome um, for, for podcasts to be a, a viable medium uh, for legal scholarship. Um, so, you know, in addition to sort of changing our or, or expanding our standards for um, what constitutes legal scholarship for the purposes of tenure and promotion, I think there would also need to be pretty explicit institutional support for podcasting. Um, you know, we have all these structures in place for those who are not part of the legal academy um, for, for to, to support the creation of legal scholarship in its written form. You know, their faculty get scholarly leave to work on big writing projects. Um, there is financial support for their research. We get, you know, research assistance for hundreds of hours a year. Um, you know, our we have opportunities to present at colloquia and brown bags to, you know, bounce our ideas off our colleagues and get feedback. And all of this is geared towards written scholarship in the form of articles, right? That same support um, and that same, um, that same, those same institutional resources would need to be extended to podcasters as well. Um, you know, I know that my colleagues are very generous with their time as far as like reading works in progress and providing feedback. You know, I would hope that my colleagues and that other law faculty would be generous in, you know, contributing ideas to a scholarly podcast, appearing as guests or commentators or panelists. I mean, there would need to be that support there um, for the medium to really advance as a form of legal scholarship. More broadly, like the sort of freeing ourselves from like our being sort of shackled to the rankings. I can talk about that a little bit. I know you have feelings on that. Okay. Um, so the other, I think, sort of broader philosophical change that would be required is that, you know, we really would um, 
institutionally need to free ourselves um, from our our connectedness to these existing systems of ranking that are so prevalent in legal academia. Um, you know, scholarly impact ranking as a component of you know of a law school's overall institutional ranking is is problematic in a lot of different ways. Um, and I and I talk about some of like the the issues with scholarly impact methodology based on citation in the article. Um, and this is, you know, not something that I, I'm certainly not the first person to talk about this. There's been a substantial amount of scholarship on this already. Um, but, you know, to one possible, you know, negative consequence, if we remain sort of tied to these systems is that, you know, legal academics who perhaps publish fewer written articles and instead spend time creating, you know, a scholarly legal podcast could potentially harm their schools in some minor way, their schools, you know, scholarly impact ranking, which might affect their ranking overall, which might affect their admissions, which might affect their, you know, bottom line, really. Um, and, and that's certainly something that like, if there's already sort of this clear movement to push back on these ranking systems, and which is part of why I think this is sort of the moment in time where broadening how we conceive of legal scholarship kind of seems possible, right? So five years ago, where like US News and World Reports was the end all be all in um, legal academia, you know, I, I, I didn't see it even like, I don't think I could have seen it as possible because what law school administration would say, yes, stop writing law review articles and start making podcasts. But as schools are, you know, withdrawing from voluntarily submitting data to U.S. News um, and sort of the the importance and the validity of that ranking system is, is up in the air and a new ranking system hasn't really like stepped in to take its place and there's not necessarily a new methodology. Well, here's the, here's the time, right? Here's the moment where we can, you know, kind of break free of that and say, okay, well, in the absence of a clear, um, a clear ranking system that is, you know, universally accepted, well, we're on our own. We're on our own to tell the, the world and potential law students who we are, what we have to offer. Um, and, you know, if what we have to offer is like re really exciting, interesting, dynamic legal scholars who can, you know, create scholarly podcasts that like lots of people, thousands and tens of thousands of people want to listen to, isn't that like a great advertisement for who we are as an institution? Um, certainly more so than like whether we churn out, you know, law review articles in flagship law reviews uh, every year. Absolutely. And I, I'll say I certainly um, think that, that the legal profession has a, a problem with trying to, to quantify what are essentially qualitative uh, questions. And I think the ranking systems are a big part of that. And 
anything that helps us move away from them is, is, is a good thing in, in my book. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a, a little bit, um, as, as you do in the article, about some of the benefits to kind of the, the, the podcaster, the, their audience, and their institution um, from scholarly podcasting unrelated or, or tangential to, to sort of the scholarly benefit of it. Right. So, so what else do, do people get out of scholarly podcasts beyond advancing scholarship? Sure. Well, so I think for guests, right, even with even with our existing our existing podcasts about scholarship that maybe not are not exactly scholarship, um, guests certainly benefit from raising their profile like as a scholar. Um, on a particular issue. And so I I spoke um, with Etienne Toussaint, who is a former colleague of mine, about his appearances on Ipsa Dixit. Um, and, you know, one of the things that he mentioned is that he really did part of why he wanted to be on the podcast to talk about a particular piece is he really wanted to raise his profile and, and establish himself as a voice in a conversation um, that wasn't necessarily his primary area of scholarship. And, you know, this podcast gave him an opportunity to do that uh, because it's, you know, heard by a lot of people, a much broader audience than, you know, perhaps he would reach simply with an essay that was published um, in an online law review. Um, I also think, you know, and the hosts of Strict Scrutiny are a great example of this, really great podcast hosts almost become celebrities in our current culture and nobody gets more positive attention for a law school than a celebrity law professor. Um, you know, I, I point to some, you know, very, I think metrics of today, um, related to the strict scrutiny hosts, but, um, Leah Littman and Melissa Murray have an unreal number of followers on Twitter. Um, so many more than one would ever imagine as like a law professor you would ever be able to uh, attract. So I think that, you know, and, and all of that is because of the good work that they do. And I think that that ultimately benefits their school. It helps with uh, recruiting, it helps with fundraising. Um, you know, it, it it makes them faces and names that are known uh, in broad audiences, not just with their like narrow group of scholarly peers. Indeed. Uh, so, in in closing, uh, I'm wondering if you can give some thoughts about what individual members of, of law faculties who are convinced by uh, your argument can do in their institutions to help kind of encourage the adoption uh, of, of podcasting as a, a scholarly medium? So that's a good question. Um, and this is just a hypothesis. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think the place to start, based on my fairly limited experience as a member, as a voting member of, law, of a law school faculty, is to take a look at your bylaws and your standards for tenure and promotion um, and see, like, do they leave the door open for podcasting uh, 
in some form, whether it's as a host or as a guest, perhaps in a more substantive way, right? Um, do the, does it leave the door open for that to be considered part of a faculty member's body of scholarship? And could it be made more explicit? And is that something that you as a faculty member would like to advance to your colleagues and you know argue on behalf of? Because I think that's where you start, right? Um, because once it is considered part of a faculty, part of a faculty's potential body of scholarship, then the institutional support can follow. Um, you know, I, I think the other pieces of that, I think that faculty supporting, I want to say, um, experiments, but I don't necessarily mean it in that way. But faculty who have colleagues who are kind of engaging in more experimental forms of scholarship need support, right? They need um, colleagues who are going to um, kind of stand with them and contribute in whatever way they can, um, as opposed to you know, as opposed to sort of resisting it because it's new and it feels unfamiliar and it feels uncomfortable, right? So I think, you know, if anyone is convinced at all <laughs> by my argument, even just a tiny bit, I would say that like the the other big thing you could do is just be open to um, to more experimental forms of scholarship, even if it's not what you would personally choose to do, um, support it contribute to it if you can, um, provide feedback on it that is constructive uh, and not um, simply discouraging. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's a place to start. I think what's beyond that, you know, I think it's going to take some people really tackling this to know in a more concrete way what what is sort of required. I'm actually hoping uh, to do something like this uh, in the near future. I feel like it's now my responsibility after writing this article to give it a shot uh, and see how it goes and perhaps, you know, share my experience with others and, you know, let that be a place for others to build from. Um, whether I'm successful or not. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of working on some ideas and a proposal now to do more of like a serialized uh, topical um, podcast season, if that makes sense. Uh, so I was really inspired by, for if there's, again, if I, this is a pretty well-known podcast, but maybe not you know, in the legal space, but um, the podcast Articles of Interest, which is a, it's a fashion podcast, but in a, I think what I think is a really scholarly uh, way. So um, the third season of this podcast delves into the history of preppy fashion. Again, it sounds, it, again, maybe not that relatable uh, to, <laughs> um, to a legal audience, but there are a lot of things about the way the host, um, Avery Truffleman, goes into the origins of what we think of as preppy, um, you know, looking at 
sort of where sort of where it originated historically, both in the U.S. and in Japan, how um, post-war culture in both countries influenced it, how urban sub subculture um, also supported it as a as a style and helped it grow. Um, she uses a lot of scholarship, um, both through interviews and through primary sources to really illustrate all of this. Um, and she supplements all of her episodes with like visual content as well as transcription via like an online newsletter, um, which kind of gives it that written component. And if someone were wanting to cite to it or refer to it, they would have something to kind of cite to refer to. Um, so that's, and it's, uh, I want to say it's seven episodes in the season, but it really goes so deeply into this topic and presents not just a history, but also sort of a theory of why this is an enduring style that we keep coming back to culturally over and over again. And it's just, it, it's such like, I loved the podcast so much. I love the season so much. And I just the idea of creating something like that, um, but with a legal focus was really exciting to me. Well, that sounds fascinating. And, and I, for one, am very excited to, to see what you're going to do here. I, I look forward to, to listening to it when it, when it comes out. Um, I, I will just add um, my own contribution to what uh, faculty members could do. Um, download and read Positioning Podcasting as Legal Scholarship by Sarah Grass. Uh, it's an excellent paper. and There's a, a, a lot in it that, that we didn't have a chance to get to during this discussion. So, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. This was fascinating and, and illuminating for me. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Just to lean on Jesus' breath 
There is blessed peace and rest And the comfort that's provided by His Word If the blessings don't come in Get on your knees and dial again And soon the voice of Jesus will be heard Heaven's radio On the other shore For my precious Savior always listens It's the same old radio That was used a long time ago For my precious Savior always listens Always listen.